If you would like, you may turn to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15. Once again, this is the entire chapter is a parable, and a parable is a story, it's a device to communicate information to people, not by virtue of the bare syllables of the words, okay? The words are metaphors, and a metaphor is a, is a word that signifies something else. So as we read through this parable, and you know if you've been here, I'm trying to make connections with both the culture of the day, because Jesus talks about a sheep, Jesus talks about a, a sheep and, and a shepherd that found the sheep, a coin and a woman that found the coin, and in the section we'll be starting today, I'll be starting today, a man who has lost sons, plural. So we have to work to do some cultural analysis in the first century, but also to connect what he's saying with the Old Testament. Because when you do that, I think some of these parables uh, almost jump off the page. So again, a storytelling device using metaphors, which are words that signify not the things themselves, but something other than themselves to teach us a theological and spiritual lesson. The lesson that Luke 15 tells us, uh, teaches us, is that Pharisees and scribes, the religious elite of the first century Jews, were murmuring, were complaining, were grumbling about Jesus being with tax collectors who were Jewish traders, who were working for the hated Roman government, working for the devil, I mean the hated Roman government, and exacting more taxes than they should from their fellow citizens, and yet Jesus was hanging around with them, and some of these tax collectors, like Matthew, even claimed to be a follower of Christ, a Christian. And these sinners as well. The Pharisees and scribes didn't like this. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He was doing more than that. He was chasing after them and saving them. He came to do the very thing he was doing, and the very thing he was doing is what the Pharisees and scribes had a problem with. Talk about getting the Old Testament wrong. They got it way wrong. Our Lord designed to rebuke, this is Benjamin Keach, our Lord designed to rebuke the pride of the Pharisees for thinking they never went astray or broke God's commandment or did displease him so as to need repentance. So this is a rebuke. All three sections are a rebuke to these religious leaders. Note how um, verse 11 reads, Then he said, uh, that is our Lord, then he said, a certain man had two sons. Now mark these words, two sons. Most people in my audience have been around the Christian faith for a while. And if I said, Luke 15, you might say the parable of the prodigal son. And I'd say, yeah, but there's more to Luke 15 than the parable of the prodigal son, right? There's the first act of the parable, the lost sheep that was found, and the shepherd throws it over his shoulders and brings it back home rejoicing with friends and neighbors. There's the lost coin that the woman found, finds and rejoicing takes place. But there's two sons 
in verses 11 through the end. It's not just one son, the prodigal, the one that was out there that was found, but there's another son in the story as well. So a certain man had two sons. The last section of Luke 15 is about two sons, not one son. There are lessons being taught by Jesus about both sons, and I think about this certain man as well. But note as well, this certain man. So there are three prominent persons in this section, a man and his two sons, the younger son and the older son. And this should not be labeled the parable of the lost son due to this. One man suggests this title, the compassionate father and the two lost sons. I kind of like that. Now, here are three important questions which must be answered as we work our way through the section. Three, three important questions. Number one, what or who does the man signify or represent? A certain man. Now, we've seen in previous verses these words that are used by Jesus signify something else. Does this certain man signify something other than just a, a random man? That's really not important to the story. I would say no, and I'm going to answer the question, who does the man signify later? But the second question, what or who does the younger son signify or represent? Okay, so we have a younger son, we have a certain man, we have a younger son, we have an older son. What or who, or whom, does the younger son signify or represent? Surely, at least, tax collectors and sinners, but I would even say the elect of all ages in their state of unbelief and sin. And the third question is, what or who or whom does the older son signify or represent? I'm going to read the section, and so you'll see that these are pertinent questions. Uh, John Gill, our friend from the 18th century, says this of the older son. By the elder son are meant the scribes and Pharisees and self-righteous persons among the Jews. I think he's right, at least initially, but there's a wider extension, extensive application to, I think, it's safe to extend the metaphor, to all unsaved sinners who think they are fine without Jesus. So let's read this section. It's kind of long. It begins in verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. So verses 12 and several verses below it address the younger son. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, what does that signify? And there wasted his possessions with prodigal living, loose living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. What does that mean? I mean, on the surface, we can kind of figure it out maybe culturally the first century, but 
if these are metaphors, if these are signs signifying other things, what are they signifying? I don't have the answer to all your questions, by the way. I still have questions having worked through this myself. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. There's the theme of rejoicing again after someone's found or something is found. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, verse 25. So verses 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 32, are the older son. We're going to begin today looking at the younger son. Scene one, then I'll call it, is the younger son. Scene two is the older son. So scene one, the younger son, verses 12 through 24. Notice, first of all, in verse 12, the younger son's request and the father's response. And the younger, younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that f falls to me. So he divided to them his liveliness, his liveliness. Now notice the directness of this request. The younger son is requesting of his, something of his father. He says, give me, right? He, not, my dear father, or, I want to make a humble request of you, but give me. I think that's important here. Here's what Keats says. Give me a saucy and irreverent manner of speaking to a father. I like that word, saucy. A saucy and irreverent manner of speaking to a father. Give me. Not pray, father. If you please give me. Or I humbly entreat you, Father. No, but Father, give me. Okay, so this is pride, arrogance, presumption. It's not a good scene here. Note as well, not only the directness of his request, but that this was not culturally acceptable. So remember, we're doing two things. What would this teach these people hearing it in the first century from the culture and then from other portions in Scripture? Now, this was not normal practice at all in those days. And in fact, the younger son is saying this, I wish you were dead so I can get my share of your estate. But since you're, you aren't dead, give me it anyway. 
I want your things, but I don't want you. Something like that. But note how the father was expected to respond. Okay, so now we're trying to put ourselves in the culture of the day again. How would an ancient Near Eastern father respond to a son that says, gimme? He should have responded this way. You are a proud, self-loving, disrespectful son. You are shaming me by this request. Get out, or something like that. He was expected to get angry. He was expected to lose his temper. And he was expected to slap the boy on his way out of the house. Here's how another man puts it. The father is expected to explode with anger and refuse. Oh, and refuse. He's expected to do that. And this is what the Pharisees and scribes would have expected. But he didn't do that. Remember I used the word irony before? Sometimes things turn out in this story not the way they first appear. You would expect an ancient Near Eastern father to say, out of here. He doesn't do it. Why? This indicates to us that the father in this story is not the typical ancient, middle, uh, ancient Near Eastern father that the original audience would have expected him to be. Okay, so whoever this father signifies, it's not the typical father of the day. At first it starts out that way, but there's irony here. What you would expect to happen, get out of my house, doesn't happen. Matter of fact, you never hear a harsh or stern word from this father. It's really interesting. But note as well that the father complied with his son's demand. Not only does he not do what's expected, he does what's unexpected. Not only does he execute his justice, which he could have done, but he actually displays a form of kindness and mercy. He gave the younger son what he requested. By the way, is it always good, good to give your children what they request? No. It would have been less than what the older son would get, since he was older and whatever his share was, was increased over the years above his younger son. It seems that the older son stayed home, so his father was still in charge of his wealth, and it could have increased over time due to the father's good management of the state. Even though he distributed it between them, it didn't mean the older son could spend it however he wanted, because he still lived at home, and we'll see that in the rest of the story. We know this much, the older son stayed home, and the father still had control, both Sons appear to be single and living at home. This has caused at least one commentator to assume they were probably older teens or in their young 20s. It doesn't matter how old they are. This younger son wanted his father's things, but did not want his father. Keach says, wicked men or man in his natural state have not God. They design to leave him. 
His family is too strict for them. They love not religion, nor do they value another world. They would have their heaven here. Your best life now. By the way, you know that that title, that's a title of a book that's a bestseller in America and maybe in other places. The gospel is not your best life now. That's not the gospel. We have our best lives then. Living as if this is it is not the solution to our problems. It's a large part of our problem. Let me say what he says again. They would have their heaven here. That's basically what this younger son wants. Just give me all the stuff, uh, that the worldly stuff that you can provide for me so I can go expend it out there and whoop it up. So that was his request. Notice in verse 15, his journey, his journey. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. When it says the younger son gathered all together, I think it means basically, you know, he's cashing out here. He's throwing all the stuff that his dad gets into one egg basket, and he's going to take it with him. Certainly, being a wealthy family, the father and sons were well known in the community. The community would have been outraged at this. The son makes public what was probably a private agreement. There's public shame going on here. But there should be no doubt that Jews, that Jesus is depicting by the actions of this younger son what we all do as sinners. Before you look at this younger son and go, what a loser. Okay? Remember, parables use verbal signs, words, metaphorically, that signify other things. We are being signified here. In one sense, we're all the younger son because we've taken the good gifts that God has given by, to us by virtue of our created status throughout the entirety of his providential dealings with us, and to some degree, we've spoiled them. We've used them for our own lusts. We go far from God, and we do it fast. Now, what's this far country? Have you ever wondered about that? Many, many years ago, when I was in seminary, we had a visitor come to lecture, and, uh, and he says, it was Albert N. Martin, and he says to the students, he says, you need to, if you would remember to pray for my oldest, only son, pray for my son, he's in the far country. And I was going, what is that, the far country, is that in the Pilgrim's Progress or what? I, I didn't know, recall Luke 15, he was using this as a parallel to his son being out fulfilling his lusts. Now, what does this far country signify? Doesn't seem to be a good place, right, as we read through it. So it has to be something not good, but bad, but appeared to be good to the younger son, right? I want to leave what appears to be a bad situation, living with my father and my older brother, and I want to go to a place that appears to be a better situation. But Jesus calls it a far country. Here's what Gil says. 
The far country sets forth the state of alienation a sinner is in while unconverted. I think he's right. Okay, so whatever this far country is, it's not a good thing. What is it? It's the state of being unconverted. It's the state of being under the wrath of God. It's a state of living in this world without Christ, without covering, without forgiveness, without power, without all those things. And remember these words of John Gill. The far country sets forth the state of alienation a sinner is in while unconverted. So this is an unconverted sinner trying to go away from God. Notice thirdly his conduct while in this far country, verse 15b, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or loose or undisciplined living. So this son spends his possessions foolishly. No details are given later. We didn't read the section. We did a few weeks ago. Later, the older son claims his younger brother spent his money on, among other things, prostitutes, right? We can at least draw this. Life in sin squanders loosely the gifts of God. Life in sin squanders very prodigally, very loosely, the good things that God gives us providentially so that we might glorify and honor him. Instead, we spend those things and the time God allots to us to serve our own self-centered lusts. Notice verse 14. Excuse me. Did I get these verses mixed up? Oh, I wrote the wrong verse. So if you saw my notes, you would see verse 15 instead of verse 13. So don't look behind that curtain. Now, verse 14, the consequences of his conduct in the far country. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want, in need, in lack. He recognized something. Now, famines don't happen overnight, right? It just doesn't happen overnight. So we assume then, and I don't think it's far-fetched, to assume that the younger son was in the far country for some time. Along with famine comes impoverishment, the absence of food, and other necessities of life. Life in sin brings hardships and impoverishments. I think that's kind of the principle that we ought to learn here. Life in sin brings hardships and improvements. And you know what we do when we're in sin and we're far from God and Christ? Not only do we live this way, life in sin brings hardships and impoverishments, but when we do sinful things that bring, that bring hardship and impoverishments, you know what we try to do to undo the hardships and improvements? Uh, impoverishments is we sin more to try to cover up our previous sins and we make the bad situation, as they say, worse. I think there's more to this, though. What does the severe famine signify, right? I'm not going to tell you what all the things in here signify because I'm not sure myself, but I'm pretty sure the severe famine signifies something like this. 
This is John Gill. Sin brings men into a starving and famishing condition. For in the far country, the land of sin, they that are in this land live on bread of deceit and labor after that which satisfies not. I think he's right. Severe famine, what is he talking about? Well, if you're a non-Christian, you're not going to have food. No, he's saying all of us in our lost condition live in the land of sin, live on the bread of lies, and work or labor after that which doesn't satisfy the soul. But notice, he began to be in want. There's some sort of recognition happened. All right, I'm out here in this far country. I've squandered my, um, the gifts that my father has given me. I've made a fool of myself. Uh, he began to be in want. Gill says this man now began to see and feel himself to be in want, though as yet he was not rightly and truly sensible of his wants, at least of the way to redress them. Here's what he's saying. He was already in the state of want. He was already in the state of needing something he lacked or lacking something he really needed. But notice, next, his action to combat his want. This is verse 15. His action to combat his cons- the consequences of his actions. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. So, a recognition, to some degree, I lack some things I need. And then, this is his action. Now, if we go on this side of the metaphor, from the cultural in the first century to the spiritual, we're saying the sinner recognizes he's a sinner, or can, okay, and can feel bad about it, and then oftentimes tries to do something about it. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. He is digging his own grave, we could say. He is getting deeper and deeper into trouble. He realizes he has needs he can't, com- he can't meet himself, So he tries to do something to meet those needs. But that ends up making life worse for him. Some of you are going back when you remember what it was like in the 70s or 80s or 90s or whenever that the conviction of sin started to hover over you. For me, in my personal experience, it was three months of intense conviction. I went to church to get the, the hurt that felt good. That's what I called it. Because every single time I went, I was reminded, you're a sinner. But every single time I went, I was reminded, there's a Savior. I didn't understand the second part until I fully realized and consciously embraced the first part. And I think that's part of what's going on here. Jesus is saying, sinners, unconverted sinners, start to recognize that the thing they need the most is outside of themselves, yet they don't go outside of themselves. They try to do other things to make up for it. 
He's getting deeper and deeper into trouble. Most likely, the young son was in a Gentile land working for a Gentile pig herder. Some of you know that culturally, this is going to be a sour taste in the Pharisees and scribes' mouth. This would really paint the picture of sin as ugly in the minds of Pharisees and scribes. In one sense, if they were tracking along, they would have thought, yep, that's the type of people Jesus is receiving and eating with. So this story might actually justify their posture. Yeah, exactly, Jesus. Those are the very types of people that you're eating and and, uh, drinking with and receiving and eating with, and that's our problem with you. They might be thinking, that's what sinners are like. In effect, Jesus is saying, I am now going to paint a picture of sin for you. I think that sin and the sinner are like a young Jewish boy who tells his father to die by asking for his inheritance. He then sells his portion of the family estate with his father in good health and resident in the village. Beyond that, he travels to a far country, loses the inheritance money to the Gentiles in a Greek city, and ends up feeding pigs. This is my view, unquote. I was quoting somebody. I think he's right. This would be a repulsive picture of evil to those first century hearers. Well, another man says, he sought, that is the younger son, he sought pleasure, he finds pain. That's a good way to put it. He wished freedom, but he gets bondage. Do you see the irony that happens in our own lives? We're pursuing freedom by fulfilling our lusts and what happens to us, we get in bondage to creaturely things, either ourselves or others. We seek pleasure, self-centered pleasure, where we use ourselves and things and other people to try to fulfill our desires. We end up getting pain, sometimes lots of it. Notice as well in verse 16, we have his solitude, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So he's in want, he recognizes it, I'll gladly eat what pigs eat. Nobody's given him pig food either. During a time of famine, food is scarce. And even the food of pigs is considered an important commodity for pigs. (laughs) He would have eaten the pig food, but no one gave him anything. He's all alone. He's wallowing in the mire of his own choices. Now he comes to his senses in verse 17. But when he had, hold on, how much does he really come to his senses here? That's a good question. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. He looks at his current situation and compares it with his father's hired men. Some have understood this to be his conversion. I don't know if you were understanding it as his conversion, when he came to himself, he was effectually called. Okay. He looked at himself and thought, I am a mess. 
My father's hired men are better off than I am. I repent. Okay? That's the way some people read it. But I don't think this displays true repentance because of what he resolves to do in the next two verses. Listen to verses 18 and 19. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So far, so good. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So far, so good. Make me like one of your hired servants. That last sentence, make me like one of your hired servants, like you want to do something to appease the father. I don't think that's good, and we'll look at that later. Here is Keach on the words, and I perish with hunger. Now he saw he was distressed indeed. His convictions were never right. Now he saw he was undone and must perish. If this does signify lost sinners, what can we say about them? Here's what Gill says. In the far country, in the citizens' fields, among his swine and their husks, all mankind are in a lost and perishing condition for having sinned against God. They have exposed themselves to the curse of the law and are destitute of a justifying righteousness and are in the way to ruin and destruction, but all are not sensible of it, being ignorant of God and his righteousness, of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and of the insufficiency of their own righteousness, but some are sensible of it and in their own apprehensions are ready to perish. These see sin in its true light without a view of pardon, an angry God, without a smile, injured justice, without a righteousness, and a broken law, without a satisfaction for the violation of it. And such was this man's case. I think he's right, as we'll see in the next two verses, um, but I want to stop there. What, what, what's Gil saying? He understands that he's a guilty sinner. But does that necessarily mean he's a saved sinner? That's a good question. I confess to be a guilty sinner, therefore I'm a saved sinner. I confess the law is holy, just, and good, and that I have not lived up to it. I confess that I am an, an obnoxious to the wrath and condemnation of God. I confess that this, that, and the other. But do you confess that your only hope is not to go work like a hired man to earn the favor of the Father in the story, but to flee to Christ with all your guilt? That, that's the point. And I don't think that we can see that yet. We're going to see it soon. So what I want to do in the verses that we've looked at so far uh, through verse 17 is just draw out some contemplations or lessons, just two of them. One concerning sin. Sin is departing from God and is spending your time and talents in rebellion against his law. It is a servile state of being. You think you are free when you are actually bound, right? It is a dissatisfying way of life. It is actually death. Remember he said, my son was dead and now is alive. So regeneration occurred. But being in the far country is the walking dead. 
That's where the walking dead are, the living dead, unsatisfied, constantly going from one thing to another or from the same thing to that thing again to try to find satisfaction in it, to try to soothe the conscience, to try to fulfill the desires, and none of it does it. A second contemplation is this, looking at the story of the prodigal son through the lens of Scripture, wider lens. Consider man's fall into sin, not just sin in ourselves, but man's fall into sin. It is obvious that Jesus teaches us about man in sin in Luke 15, 11 and following. The younger son is his first illustration of man in sin. The younger son is an illustration of man in, as an illustration of man in sin can be seen in several ways. So here's the younger son, not the cultural younger son, but the metaphorical spiritual younger son. And I'm saying you can, this is an illustration of man in sin, and we can see it in several ways. One, the younger son goes from being in a good relation to the father to estrangement. Now, when did that start? Well, we'd have to say way back there. The son of God, Luke 3.38. Adam was the first son of God. So we could say, like Adam, the younger son chooses to leave the safety of being with the father. Adam, remember, was created good, was a sinless image bearer of God, and rightly related to God. Also, the younger son goes from being in a safe place to a far country. Adam was created outside the garden, put in the garden, sinned, and was banished from the garden. Far country, you think? Wilderness, maybe? Yes, thank you. Like Adam, the younger son chooses to leave safety and finds himself in a wilderness. Recall that Adam was created, then placed in the garden, as I just said. Adam's sin in the garden, an act of rebellion in God's special dwelling place, gets him exiled into the wilderness of the world, into the far country. So when did the far country start? When Jesus spoke about it in Luke 15? Nope. What was the first exile when Israel was kicked out of its land by the Assyrians? No, when Adam was kicked out. Where did Adam go? From a good place to a not so good place, to thorns and thistles, to wilderness wanderings, to far country. Third and finally, the younger son goes from bad to worse with the permission of the father, right? He just lets it happen. That's what you're going to do. You're going to destroy yourself. Have at it, I guess. Like Adam, the younger son is allowed to go out of safety, but pays the price for it. Right? He starts to realize, I'm in want. I can't. I got to go work for this pig herder. That's like, what? Go back to the father. No, I'm going to go feed swine for a gentile. This is how Paul views the history of man, in fact, in sin in Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them over to degrading passions. God gave them over to a depraved mind. This giving over is a form of, of temporal retributive, uh, temporal justice, okay? Not final justice, not final judgment, but judgment. You want your sin? Go get some more. You want some more? Try to go get it all. 
And in the midst of that, we're actually in bondage and we never get satisfied. The younger son is given over to sin. Just as God let Adam go in sin, so the rest of us go on in our sin. And just like the younger son, also we go, as, as we go far from God in sin, we do not get better. What happens? We get worse, right? The answer then can't be the younger son needs to snap out of it, all right? Come on, guy, you can do it. You got all the resources necessary in yourself to make your life better. You can clear your conscience of all that, that sin-stained guilt and all those bad thoughts that you have about yourself that are actually true. You can clear yourself. You need to pull up the bootstraps, tighten the belt, bite the bullet, and do better. If that's my message, you need to fire me. Not, and don't wait to next Lord's Day annual business meeting. Fire me before that. Do better. You know, I got a perfect smile with those $8,000 teeth, you know. Don't you want to punch some of those toothless, uh, tooth, toothful wonders? You just want to punch them like, dude, that's not the gospel. This is, this, is, this is a picture of the gospel. So whatever this younger one's doing, number one, it's not good. Number two, we all do it. And number three, there's no way out of it unless God does something about it. And you want to know what God does? He uses a metaphor of a father showing his unconditional love, running out toward his wicked son. Who do you think the man is? I think it's Jesus. I wish more commentators on the shelf said that. They had a bad day when they... But I think it is Jesus. We'll get there at some point. Well, we're going to look at verses 18 and 19 for our after-lunch meditation. So I will stop there and pray. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. Thank you for parables. They're hard sometimes to get, to understand. Sometimes we underinterpret them, and sometimes we overinterpret them. But I trust that the main things were made clear, that this younger son represents all sinners in one sense. All of us have gone astray. All of us have gone our own way, and none of those ways is a good or right way. It puts us into a far country, far from the safe presence of God, far from the forgiveness of our sins, far from an approved righteousness uh, which is alone approved by heaven, that is the righteousness of Jesus that covers us, that covers sinners. Please help us to see these things and other wonderful things from this passage and others. And now help us to sing in response to your word preached. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.